Hey, welcome to Founders and Friends. And I just want to do a quick intro for my awesome conversation with Mark McLeod that you're going to hear in a second. Mark has just been a longtime friend, been on the podcast a bunch of times, and he did a really cool life transition. So instead of being a tech exec at Shopify or in FreshBooks, and instead of being a venture capitalist, and then instead of running his own M&A shop, he actually became an exec coach for startups. And you'll hear in the conversation how happy he is, how great he's doing. He has so many, there's so many great things that came from this, but one of my favorite ones was learning how to work without stress, which sounds cheesy, but really cool, really impactful. And then he's got a couple other really good sayings where he talks about how a founder of a startup has actually grow faster than the company, which I actually really believe. And uh, I know in times where I've been, haven't been growing fast enough, the, not only myself, but the company struggled a little bit and same, probably same with Vanessa. And then he also talks about the importance of unlocking growth in the organization, both for the founder to put them in kind of that growth position and help force them to change and force them to grow, but also all the benefits that come for the company. So this is a great conversation. Mark's a really good friend. It's a, uh, it's a longer podcast, but I kept it long because there's so much here and there's so much to unpack. And I think this might be one that you could listen to a couple of different times. So hope that helps. Hope you enjoy it. And thanks again, Mark, for doing the podcast. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise, Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Orn. Welcome to Founders and Friends podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Mark McLeod. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Scott. So happy to be here. Well, it's great to see you. You are like... I'm going to blow your talking points here, but former tech exec, then M&A expert, and now you are living the good life. Do you want to tell people what you're doing now? Yeah. Yeah. Very brief. I'll go from the beginning, but go super fast. So 14 years as yeah. a CFO for a bunch of companies, uh, most notably Shopify and FreshBooks, uh, three years as a GP in a venture fund, five years running an investment bank. And just this year, kind of pivoted to to focus on being a, a coach to CEOs of of institutionally funded companies so venture funded and PE funded companies and that might sound like a little bit of a pivot but if i look at all of my roles whether it was like a CFO acting as a right hand to a CEO or a VC investing in CEOs or you know when you think about selling your company especially if it's founder led hugely personal decision like throughout all these roles, very, very intimate relationships with the CEOs that I've served. And that coaching and advisory aspect was the thing that I loved the most. So now I've just gotten rid of the distraction and now I'm just doing what I've always loved to do the most. Yeah. I second that. Like I know there's a bunch of things I do at Cruise, but in at a lighthouse before that, but like the conversations helping people and helping them work through really tough things and helping them enjoy the good, good moments and make their dreams come through is like by far my favorite point too. I cut like we kind of monetize through accounting and taxes, Yeah. but really I love that advisory and just, and I think you probably share the same feeling like building those relationships. They're like super long-term relationships. Like we just had fleet Smith get bought by Apple. And I still remember when like Zach called me on the phone when they were a two person company, you yep. know, like it's so like these kind of things, and I think before we turn the mics on, you were also saying that this is maybe the most rewarding position you've had in your whole career. Without a doubt. Yeah. You know, the personal impact already has been 
so huge and yeah, really, really so rewarding. And you know, I'll share one anecdote. Just in my onboarding, I was doing onboarding with new CEOs just to kind of get the current state of the union of you know the, the person and the business. And for founder-led businesses, often for better or worse, those two are inseparable. That's yeah. debate whether that's good or bad or not, but it, it is what it is. And one of the questions I always ask is, you know, kind of rate your level of satisfaction of your relationship with your significant other on a scale of one to five. And this person, you know, gave me an answer, kind of four out of five. And I was just like, you know, if I was talking to your spouse and, and asked her the same question, you know, what do you think she would say? And he was like, I don't know. Um, I'm going to ask her. And, uh, and he did. And turns out it was a one out of five. And, oh, wow. And she yeah. had just been kind of holding off and, you know, just kind of sucking it up and supporting him because he's an entrepreneur and, you know, that is what it is. But it sparked a, a whole bunch of great conversation in a rejigging of his priorities. And, you know, I'm not going to say it saved his marriage because I don't know if it was on the brink, but had a hugely positive impact. And so that that's just awesome, you know? Uh, yeah. I really love that. And you changed two lives there or maybe many lives, you know, maybe. with kids. Yeah, they got kids too. Also that positive cycle of like, if that executive kind of rejiggers their priorities, but becomes a happier person yeah, and a more balanced person that actually can really, like, I think that's the big thing is I, what I've really learned is it really translates to the whole organization and everyone that works that company is just happier and does a better job. A hundred percent. And you know, people often think, oh no, I can't carve out more time. I need to put 80 hours into work. But an hour isn't an hour isn't an hour. I don't presume all of those 60 or 80 or whatever number of hours that you put in are of equal value and equal impact. I did not become a coach to project my issues onto other people. But, you know, one of the one of the big catalysts for this decision to finally become a coach, and I would say, like, I actually bought my first book on coaching in 2002 wisely concluded I lacked the gray hair and moral authority to really crush it as a coach. So I kept grinding for a while, but it, it's something that's called to me for a long time. Also, as an aside, I'm Buddhist. Being of service to other human beings is like a huge thing for me and always has been. So very much been called to do it. But the thing that drove the decision, the a big thing that drove the timing was uh, my marriage ended last year. And, uh, you know, these things happen, the alarming frequency, you know, over 50% of marriages end. But, you know, I took the time to unpack kind of why that happened and what I could do to be a better human being and better partner in the future. And, you know, two big conclusions without getting into all of the, the dirty laundry. One is what we just talked about already. You know, I've kept a journal for years and I reread a bunch of years last year as I was unpacking of doing a postmortem on myself and saw that the days I was most excited about were the days where I had one of those one-on-one -on -one coaching advisory conversations that I felt had impact. But going back to this notion of 80 hours or whatever, you know, like the other big catalyst was work-life balance. It yeah. was never a strength through all of my roles, whether I was like a CFO scrambling to raise money for a company before it ran out of cash a first-time fund manager trying to get a first-time fund to be successful, or by the way, investment banking, like that is not an industry that prizes work-life balance in any way, shape, or form. And you know, because you've been one. And, yeah. You know, the more success that SurePath Capital had, the worse it got. And, you know, every year I, whatever, my reward status with the airline went up and it was just, it was stupid. And it was really clear to me that I could not both achieve the vision 
and potential of that investment bank and be a good husband or partner, right? It was one or the other. And COVID was actually the thing that gave me the space to think through that and, you know, have the courage to pull the trigger and pivot. That's really amazing. And yeah, it's it's the, going back to like the hour per hour thing where people think they need to work 60 or 80. And I think we were certainly, I'm speaking for Vanessa too, certainly like that too. But as you kind of strip, like, I think one thing we've, and we've, by the way, I told you this before to turn the mics on, but we go to like Vistage, which is a kind of a pure coaching group yep. with a coaching lead. And it's been a huge game changer for both Vanessa and I. So I highly recommend that to people. Mm-hmm. And it's helped us carve carve out our own role and then delegate more and also just prioritize. But like simple stuff that I've learned, like now I just block off two hours in the afternoon or two hours in the morning almost every day just to like think or do something creative, like write my scripts for videos or things like that. Like yep. you make space for yourself and you can just become better at your job and, and do it in less time and be a more giving person and help other people. So I, I think what you're doing is not to be cheesy, but it's like God's work. You're making other people happier, more successful. And you're starting that like kind of I'm visualizing when you throw a rock into the pond and those, yeah, yeah. those little waves go out and helping a lot of different people. So, totally. so kudos to you. Thank you. I will say for what it's worth that you would make a great coach. Ah, thanks man. Yeah. The reason why I, I've that. actually told Vanessa, I want to do it when we're done with cruise, yeah. you know, someday. I say that for two reasons. One is you have varied experience, right? You have deployed capital. You've been a deal maker. You're now exposed to hundreds of companies through cruise. And so there's just a whole bunch of pattern matching. But the most fundamental thing is you genuinely love people. And that sounds cheesy, but it's a prerequisite. And you have a very deep curiosity. Like it's very clear. I've listened to many of these these podcasts and you really enjoy asking questions. It's never routine. Like you just love it. And that job is to ask questions, right? So pretty clear to me, you'd be a great coach. I appreciate it. Well, I will be working for uh, Mark McLeod coaching, hopefully in uh, 10 years or something like that. But no, I appreciate it. And I've, I've, that's so super nice. That's in my book. That's like the nicest thing someone could say to me, except that I'm a great father and good husband too. So I appreciate that. Let's talk, let's jump in. So one of the things we talked about in a couple of different ways before we turned the mics on was how the role of CEO and, and just how it evolves. Yep. And we have a couple like little bullet points, but like, do you want to kind of introduce us to that topic and then we can go through some of the bullet points or we just cover the bullet points organically? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just kick it off with like yeah. maybe a sentence or two, but you know, I think, you know, my observation is like anyone can, start a company and call themselves a CEO. And, you know, back when I was a seed stage VC, I'd have like a five person company, you know, with three founders come in to pitch me and three people with C-level titles. It was bonkers. And there's a huge difference between calling yourself something and actually really being the full potential of that role. And, you know, what it means to be a CEO changes over time. You know, like I think at the highest level, I think of sort of two stages in the life of a startup, kind of pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. And, you know, so pre-product market, all you should be doing is figuring out whether your product deserves to exist in the market. Nothing else. No board meetings, none of this bullshit, 100% focused on nailing the value proposition, 
and the target customer. And again, figuring out, like I say, whether you deserve to exist. I- ideally doing it, you know, in as compressed a time frame as possible because you're burning with nominal or no revenue. Uh, yeah. It's a huge funnel, right? You know, maybe half of seed stage companies go on to raise an A, half go on to raise a B, right? So there's a big drop off at every stage. So the faster you can figure that out, the better. And then, you know, once you're in the post-target market fit, that's when actually all the issues and opportunities of being a CEO start to present themselves. That's when you start building a leadership team, trying to find repeatable channels. And, and so there's tons that's been written about this, but, you know, you should be sort of successively putting yourself out of jobs, right? Because you're the, the doer number one, everything, right? The most strategic things to the most mundane things in, in the start as a founding CEO. But over time, you go from, if I use an orchestra analogy, you go from playing the cello to being the conductor. And that's actually a huge struggle for many founding CEOs who either don't want to relinquish product or who they're just creators. So they love the startup stage, but then you get into, you know, whatever the teens, you know, 10, 15 million in, in ARR. And now it's, you know, it's boring. So you're thinking about the next shiny new thing. And like, so how do we... How do we reorient? So all the create everything that you got as a creator, all the fulfillment, all the energy, is there a way for you to maybe think about your company as the product and architect the user experience for new staff, you know, how you onboard, how you do culture, communication, like there's tons of things that can leverage all of those instincts and, and strengths, right? And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong if you conclude like, I'm just an early stage person. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just really kind of exploring it. So you reach the the decision that really reflects your core versus, you know, an instinctual kind of gut reaction decision. I think the CEO role at scale, and by the way, I realize now I've said more than a couple of sentences. I'm going to shut up. No, no, keep, going, you know, keep going. Fred Wilson wrote, I think, the canonical post on this back in like 2014, where he boiled the CEO role down to like, Three things, setting and repeating a vision and mission, et cetera, hiring and retaining great talent, particularly at the senior management level, and making sure you don't run out of cash. It's those three things. Yeah, it's beautiful. I haven't heard it put as succinctly as you said it, which making the company your product eventually, because you're totally right. The people who like to start companies or do this kind of stuff, see it as a creative outlet. Like I see it as a creative outlet. I think Vanessa does too. But then, but then that fear of like putting yourself out of jobs, it, it, whether you recognize it's a fear or not, I think it is for most people. And I know it was for me, but, but then turning your energy, like there needs to be this pivot point where, and through coaching, this is how it can happen. You start seeing like, I know the way I visualize our, I visualize our company as the product now. And I can see like, oh, our technical team is part of the product and our accounting team and our tax team and the leadership and how people work. It's it's actually incredibly fulfilling to me. It took me probably a while, but I somehow made that pivot too. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, I really enjoy, I feel like I'm in the in the workshop, you know, hammering in a nail on something and sawing something else. But really all I'm, all I'm doing is constructing like a vessel with a group of amazing people that we're, we're tackling something together. And yep. it's not, it's not about like, inventing a new way of doing accounting or things like that anymore. It's about making our service really good and making life really good for the people that work at Cruise. Yeah. I love it. That's great. Yeah. You ch- switch altitude from working. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Working yeah. On the business, right? 
That's really cool. So, so do you want, is it worthwhile kind of going through the stages like by fundraising stage or how do you, what's, what's a good way of thinking about this as a CEO's role changes? We definitely can do that. Throw it out there. We're, we're by the way, we're friends. So like normally audience, I would have like a boom, boom, boom. But Mark and I have talked so many times that I'm really kind of interested in pulling out, like not making a boilerplate and right. having a more coaching, you know, how it's because I don't know how to be a coach. <laughs> that's, that's what's interesting about this conversation right. to me, you know? Yeah. My only hesitation there was like, you know, if you read TechCrunch all the time, you think every company's funded, but actually the vast majority of startups are not. Yeah, I noticed yeah. this at SurePath, right? You know, we focused on startups that serve the SMB software market. And over five years, a full half of our clients got to north of 10 million in revenue with no funding. Totally. And so it's actually more headcounts. Like there's sort of step, there's like, there's frictions yeah. in headcount where the, everything changes. The first 10 people, you're all in the same room. You're eating pizza. You're working all the time. You're all wearing like the same really smelly hoodie. And uh, I realize I'm making like a male stereotype there, which is not intentional. But uh, in, in any event, 10 to 20 is when maybe everyone doesn't know everyone as well. So there's a more explicit need to create those bonds, to create a homogenous culture, which doesn't mean it's the Borg. It doesn't mean everyone's the same, but it, it does mean like we're, start, we're work, starting to work on culture. Yeah. And I think that's kind of moves along nicely until you get to 50 people and around 50 people you know there's some ARR number that corresponds to that but you know you're starting to figure out scalable channels of acquisition you're starting to maybe build your senior leadership team and you know these are maybe not like true c-level people but it's you know head of this head of that and you're now starting to think about how do I succeed through others? How do I enable others? How do I relinquish decision-making capability? A lot of the founding CEOs I coach sort of like really miss the point in the company where they knew literally everything. There was no question that could be asked that they could not answer, right? And I think North, like 50 people, that just starts to happen. Like if you try to be in the weeds of everything, you'll just blow up. Yeah, And um, that can coast along now. So you're starting to succeed through others. There's sort of a gap of 50 to 100 people. And north of 100 people, first of all, you've probably iterated your senior leadership team at least once along. I was going to ask that question. How do you know if like, because you're building your leadership team, but like you may, you may find some great people and they just hit the ground running, but other people may need some coaching and other people just maybe aren't a fit. Like how do you... How do you make those determinations or how do you know something's not working? Yeah, I mean, there's no one way because you're dealing with human beings and they're all different and the context and more importantly, like it's not that one person in isolation, it's that person thought of in the context of the broader management team, right? So yeah. there isn't one way, but you know, Toby from Shopify often talked about himself having to re-qualify for his job every year. And, and so that's just a really interesting mindset, right? You know, and particularly important, right? If a company is growing rapidly as a leader, you have to grow at least as fast as that in order to remain relevant and crush it in the way you might be crushing it today. So a lot of it is really thinking about the same way you think about a product roadmap. What is your leadership roadmap? What is your role mm. look like 12 months from now? 
And what things do you need to be doing now so that you deliver that set of leadership capabilities, that set of leadership functions and features 12 months from now? So it's just yeah. like you are the product. And getting out of the way if you can't deliver that. Like that's kind of the right. getting out of the way. If you if you look at that list of the things you're supposed to deliver and you know you won't be able to deliver it, then either filling the plugging the gap or just getting out of the way. That's right. And having a lot of very open and honest conversations, right? And yeah. particularly with yourself, which is super hard, right? It's hard. Like yeah. nothing in life is experienced truly objectively. Everything is experienced through our perception, through our lens. Yeah. And so this is actually where coaches can be tremendously helpful, right? To be detached. I'm not your venture investor. I may, as a venture investor, I have tons of value to add. I've seen a lot. I'm supremely networked. You know, I can help, but I have a vested interest, right? I want yeah. you to become a home run. As a CEO, maybe you can't confide everything in me because I'm also on your board of directors, right? So. Yeah. There's just a bill. And that venture capitalist has pressures on themselves. Like Absolutely. you might be their only good company out of their last five investments. So they really need you to work. That's or you may, they, you, you may not be one of their top companies. And so they care a lot less. And so understanding where they're coming from is super important. But yeah, like the coach, the other thing I find about like my version of coaching is slightly different than what you're doing, but being able to, because uh, like we do this exercise where we share like challenges that we're going through and we need help and just the, the process of articulating that and kind of forming it for the group yep. oftentimes gives me like half the answer. Yep. Cause I never, I never had that peer pressure to, to really sit down and like set the structure for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, just, I mean, I know, I know the audience might be what laugh at this, but just hearing the answer out of other people's mouth, it adds like so much credibility and weight to that. It's just really powerful. Just putting and you're kind of vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there. So having people return or respond to you, knowing you're in a vulnerable place in a constructive way is like, it's just magic. It really works. Yeah. It helps you let the guards down and also realize yeah. you're not alone. Yeah. So many people like a CEO is a pretty lonely job. You yeah. don't get a ton of feedback or if you do, it's negative. Everyone wants a piece of you. You, for better or for worse, your identity is intertwined with the companies, especially as a founder. But even like execs in big companies, you know, you know, whatever, Fortune 500 companies, it's a different issue. Like their identity is tied up in their power and their title and their yeah. status. And yeah. So they're inseparable from the role and then they get terminated and they go into depression. Like yeah, totally generalizing, yeah. but you know, like there's all of these things where being able to talk this through and realizing like you're not alone and you can get through this and everyone's facing this. Like often we have this stereotypical notion of what a CEO should be and they're confident and charismatic and they make rain happen and they're deeply strategic. But the fact is like everyone's got imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. Everyone has issues. Every single company has warts. Like yeah. guarantee that. Right. And so it's just helping you realize like, oh, I'm not insane. I'm not alone is super helpful. Yeah. How do you, how do you break down? Cause I know I've experienced it in this group way, but like when you, when you start working with a new person, do you have like, how do you get them to kind of confide or relax or trust you or, or is that, is it like that, you know, that by them coming to you, 
you know they're ready to do it or how, do, how does that process work for people who are thinking about getting a coach? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely not automatic because they're coming to me. That's obviously helpful. But I think of it in many ways the way I used to think of potential founders when I was a venture investor, where the thing, one of the biggest attributes that I was looking for was uh, self-awareness and openness to learning. Because of this observation that this, the founder would have to grow faster than the company in order to remain relevant. And right, like for me, like there's a very high, almost 100% correlation between founder success in the CEO role and company outcome, right? All the biggest outcomes are, are founder led kind of start to finish. Yeah. As a CEO, as I said, you have to grow faster than the company each year. And so like the benchmark for me on this is again, Toby from Shopify, right? I had the privilege of serving there as an interim CFO through the Series A and the Series B, spent a bunch of time with Toby. And Toby is not your charismatic, you know, stereotypical CEO persona. He is as introverted as it gets. He was a reluctant CEO. He was not the original CEO of the company. But going back to self-awareness, like introverts are very often very highly self-aware. And he absolutely he was off the charts on that. And he learned very rapidly. There's a whole bunch of other things we can get into. But anyway, just so self-awareness is a big thing that I that I look for. I think the fit has to be there because coaching is deeply personal. And, you know, again, I'm not a therapist. I ironically do have a couch in my room. So if people want to lie down on the couch, awesome. <laughs> but I'm not a therapist. But there has to be a level of trust there. I think, you know, for better or worse, anyone can call themselves a coach. And there's a lot of, let's call them so-so coaches out there. And yeah. there's maybe a, a couple of more prevalent personas. One is like someone who hasn't operated, but is accredited coach. And they've got all the tools in the toolkit to be a coach. They just don't understand your context. And startups mm -hmm. are not normal. Right. So they just don't really have an appreciation for your reality. Yeah. On the flip side, you maybe got a, a, a former CEO. And so they understand your reality. It's just like they understand it with a very small sample size. One company, two companies, at most three companies. And again, if I generalize, many of them come at it with like a certain pride and ego, right? Well, this is what I did in the past and this is what you should do. It worked for me. And that's what I was going to say. Yeah, they, they suggest like the two things that worked for them in the exact same situation. Right. You know, and that's Meanwhile, it was like 10 years ago, context yeah. totally different. And so in many ways, I feel like I apprenticed for this role for 22 years by doing a whole bunch of different things and being sort of on every side of that journey from start to exit. And so I come at it like I think what what my clients like is first of all I've been in their shoes, I've operated, I've issued, you know, I've invested and I've exited businesses. But there's a large N, like the sample size of companies I've been exposed to is large. And I'm that's not a great. A, I'm not a former CEO, so I don't have my ego and identity wrapped up in that. It's always been about being at the right hand of CEOs and enabling them and being of service to them. So it's just not about me, and that helps me be really objective. Yeah. Those two things, the large N is such a great point. Cause even in like a lighthouse, I just saw so many companies come through and we had a higher velocity model than a typical VC firm. So we, we would have 150 companies in our portfolio sure. that I would just see grow and mess the mess stuff up, but fix it or just, you know, 
And then a cruise that's like even more turbocharged because we're almost up to 300 clients now. And so, it, and those are just clients we have right now. We've had a bunch of clients get bought or unfortunately got a business. So that big N, I, I really believe in that too. And I just wrote a note to one of our founders like last week who's in a tough space getting just hammered in the travel space. And I just gave him like a little vote of confidence because I remember all the time they got so big that I stopped working with them a lot, mostly just our controller. But like, I remember getting so much from him, hmm. even though I was like the service provider or the helper and that, like those, that large N allows you to do that stuff. And then, you know, being able like the, the other point you made about just being the right hand person, not having your ego tied up in it. Like it is a different mindset, you know, like you've been, you've seen from that perspective, you've helped a bunch of CEOs and, and you know, so I, I think both those points of view are incredibly valid. Like I, and I, maybe it's cause I'm, I share a lot of that with you, Yep. but it makes so much sense to me. Awesome. So then as you, so you, after you have that foundation and trust, like, do you guys tackle like specific issues or do you put them on? Like, we talked about like the company being the product. Do you put them on like a plan or goals or how does, how does everything work? There isn't like the Mark McLeod 10 step method or any of that bullshit. Like, I do the onboarding up front to just get the state of the union of the person and the business. Out of yeah. that discussion, you know, comes usually a set of topics we're going to work through together. And people often use the term kind of coaching and mentoring on and advice sort of interchangeably, but they're very different things. Mm. And so coaching is really about me asking you questions, me probing, me taking the conversation in a certain direction where you generate your own insights and your own actions. Whereas advice and mentoring is more about, well, here's what I've seen and you know, here's what's worked in the past and you know, what do you think about trying these things? And so there's a role for both, but the foundation is, is coaching, right? It's much more about that. And so the nature of the dialogues will depend on the topic. So if one is like, I'm preparing for series B, I need to know what the bar looks like for series B, that's much more in the advice camp because there's an objective bar for being series B ready, which I've just seen a lot. So we'll talk through it. Yeah. Whereas if it's more about like, I'm struggling with imposter syndrome and I'm like completely stressed out and I'm not present at home. And so I'm being a shitty, whatever partner and father or, or mother, and that's impacting my work. That's absolutely a coaching conversation. So the nature of the interaction changes, I would say from, from session to session. But while I don't have, like I say, the 10 step program, I do have a thesis, which is like, you can read all the blog posts, you can read all the books, you can have all the coaches and advisors, but you will not transform as a leader. And until your company goes through revenue growth, and you hang on for dear life. And I will once again, go back to Toby and Shopify as a great illustration of this, right? Like Toby would not be the CEO that he is if Shopify had, if he hadn't been gone through all the growth that Shopify has gone through to become a multi-billion dollar company. Shopify wouldn't be the company that it is without having Toby as its leader. So there's like this virtuous ever expanding cycle. And so I'll, I'm not a former growth hacker. I'm not like a former CMO. I'm not sitting there tweaking conversion funnels. But once we've put out any of the fires for the person or the business, 
a huge focus of the conversations is on how do we unlock growth yep. for all the reasons that I mentioned. It will, it will just, you know, the single biggest driver of enterprise value, you know, all else being equal is year on year revenue growth rate. Yep. And like I say, that is the thing that will transform the person. And it's a thing that will deliver all the optionality. If you are growing like stink, all the investors will want to fund you. Companies will want to buy you. People will want to work with you. They'll want to partner with you. It's a virtuous cycle. So how do we unlock that? Yeah. Right. So huge yeah. focus on that. That's beautiful. And you said a couple of different times that for a company to grow, the founder has to grow faster, mm -hmm. which is I've never heard that ever, but I totally agree because like I look at times where uh, Vanessa or I was not growing fast enough or not seeing the writing on the wall fast enough and things either stagnated or we had problems. It's almost like the, a kid will let you know when you have problem, you know, like we were having that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so ha being in that mindset of continually improving is so valuable. And I, in, for, in terms of the company, you're totally right. Like unlocking that growth does lead to a bunch of different good options for, you know, more capital, bigger exit. I think the one thing that people don't quite understand that I underestimated was growing allows you to attract really good executive team members hundred percent and make sure like easier. Like, so like one of the things we had to unlock was how do we get big enough to be able to afford good executives to work with us? And we, we hit that point and we finally, and you know, like, you know, we have worked with Healy and yep. some of the other people, Bill, Lorena, a really great team, Alex, but like some of those people, we honestly just couldn't afford until we got to a certain size. And so for us, there was like this uncomfortable push to get to a certain revenue number and a certain growth rate so that we could then hire like really amazing people, which then made our lives better and made the whole company better. Yep. You know, so I, that's a good example of like what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I often encourage folks to wait as long as possible before hiring true C-level people. Like the difference... I'll take a CFO just because I was one forever. Yeah. Like the CFO you will get for a $5 million revenue company is totally different from the one you'll get for a $20 million yeah. company, right? And so this is why I like head of functional area as yeah, long yeah. as possible versus chief of functional area. Yeah, I totally agree with that too. Has there been any like, in, like any things that surprised you as you started the coaching business or the coaching practice, like things you learned about yourself or things that your clients, like there's patterns amongst the CEOs that you can share with us? The biggest surprise for me personally was, you know, sp spending the first two months of this practice. I only launched it full time three months ago, I guess, uh, learning to work without uh, guilt. Uh, or without stress, rather, and feeling guilty about not having stress. And, um, you know, it's been, been in the startup world since 1999 now, and for most or all of that time, have worked with a latent kind of just consistent level of stress. And to be clear, a lot of that was self-imposed, but nevertheless, it was a pervasive part of my reality. And now I'm not stressed. And so there was a whole thing around just understanding and accepting that. and getting over the guilt of it, and then realizing how amazing that is. And, and also realizing when you give yourself space, like look at your anatomy. Like I'm six feet tall. Most of that is body, not brain. The brain is a small part of that. 
But we walk around thinking that we're just brains. And it's like, I'm thinking, I'm on all the time. It's like, no, you're not that too. physical yeah. being. Giving yourself room to exercise, to sleep properly, to eat properly, means that when you do need to turn your brain on, you're going to deliver better. And, yeah. you know, I, I, we were talking about this, I think, before we went on air, but like, or maybe it was when we were on air, either way, but like, Many of the CEOs I talk with, right, who work 60 to 80 hours, 60 to 80 hours per week, I don't assume every hour is of equal impact and value. Like an hour is not an hour is not an hour. And my fundamental belief is like if they took the time to feed themselves first, exercise, sleep, nutrition, I'm not going to make everyone meditate, but I think they should meditate. I hate the word should, by the way. I just used that word. Uh, we can talk about that. Should, should is a four-letter word, even though it has five letters. But if they feed themselves first, they will have a way bigger impact. And and work expands to fill all available time. If you give it 80 hours, it'll take 80 hours. If I, I would argue, this is extreme, but I would argue that if you gave it 40 hours, you could still crush and deliver 80% or more of what you're delivering in the 80 in those 40 hours. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's something I always think about this. This is one of the ways that got me to slow down or take a step back or just create room. Not perfect analogy, but like when you're doing the 60 or 80 hour weeks, a lot of your decision making or the way you work with people is kind of reactive. Oh, yeah. And I always think like the crocodile brain, the reptilian brain, because you're so tired or you're just so unfulfilled or whatever it is, you're not really who you are and thinking clearly. Yep. And so you tend to make reactive decisions instead of being more inquisitive and slowing down and think, and that's all stuff I've been trying to work on quite a bit, like slowing down, taking time, asking questions, things like that. So you get in this reptilian decision-making method, which I think is kind of addictive because it satisfies this weird, you know, the reptilian brain. So it, it feels okay. It feels good. And you get like some adrenaline because you're making decisions and it feels like you're moving fast, but you're not moving. I think you move a lot faster when you do feed yourself, like you said, and, and just take time and, and ask the why more often. That's right. I mean, the, you key, just, the key word there is just reacting, right? Like work is happening to you, not by you, right? Yeah. And you feel good. It's busy. Like, oh, I'm adding value, but you're not yeah. intentional, right? Just what you talked about earlier, right? You're taking the first couple of hours of your day to create right? Yeah. Creating, you're carving out that space. If you tried to fit it in between meetings, it probably wouldn't happen or it wouldn't be as creative. So you're being intentional, at least with that part of your day. And yeah. so if taking the time again, to be intentional to like, what is it that I need to achieve? How can I add the most value? And then moving with intention versus reacting is absolutely the more powerful way, right? And like, there is a dopamine hit. Every time you, you get an email or a Slack ping, there's a little hit of dopamine in your brain, right? It's yeah. a thing. So it's yeah. getting- And the alpha brain really craves that dopamine. Whereas like the, the kind of uh, happy, content brain doesn't need it as much, right? you know? And that's why I think they it feeds on itself. Yep. And we only got a few more minutes, but let's talk about should, because I, I think I know where you're going with that, and, I, and I'm and i guilty of that too. Right. <laughs> so talk about why should is a four-letter word. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, like, stop shooting all over yourself, right? It's just like, <laughs> it's these external expectations. Often we impose them on ourselves thinking that, this is what others do, right? 
And again, going back to this stereotypical notion of, well, a CEO does this, I, I should do this, you know, and like, who says, like, who wrote the manual to say that is the thing. And, and by the way, like, CEOs come in all different shapes and sizes. If you're a technical introvert, the path for you to succeed and thrive is very different than an enterprise sales leader who's now a CEO. So yeah. you have to, like the path to success is molding the role according to your strengths, your superpowers, what feeds you. Like, you know, there's this Japanese concept called Ikigai. And it's like the intersection of what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. And, you know, if you can connect the dots on all of that, you can have huge impact and never feel like you're working a day in your life. The other thing I was think about should is that it's easy for people to say to you oh, yeah. without having any of the responsibility. It's like a, I don't know how to, I'm not going to articulate this perfectly, but like, it's easy to give a recommendation, but not fully, you're giving kind of back what you're saying. You're, you're bringing your own history to that recommendation or things like that. And it's a classic, like you're giving a recommendation, but you're not like a hundred percent invested in it because it's not your company or your life or your relationship. And so that should carries like, you got to be careful. Like, don't let that should carry a ton of weight when it's coming from other people. It's, it's much better if you can yep. generate it yourself. And again, I'll go back. So first of all, I totally agree with that, but I'll go back to now distinguishing between coaching and advice. So often that should is advice that here's a thing that you should yeah. do. You know, with coaching, I would be asking questions so that the person generates their own should. They're not using the word should, but they're coming to an insight and action, but it comes from the inside. It's just not being imposed. But that should, that advice thing, like the thing I always tell people about advice, even when I give advice, it's all just input, right? You know, yeah. I, I, and so you ultimately have to decide. You know, I had a, a coaching call today with a CEO uh, running a vertical specific SaaS business, and we were talking through strategy direction, uh, you know, that's specific to his industry. And I asked a bunch of questions, you know, trying to diagnose where things were at. And I offered some suggestions at the end on this strategy. It was around whether to acquire a company and the implications of that on product strategy. And like at the end, it was just like, you've spent years thinking about this. Like we've just spent an hour. So yeah. take it for what it's worth. It's input. It's not, I'm not telling you, you should do that. We're playing back what you've told me. These are the conclusions I draw, right? But it's just input. I told you about speaking in front of the group that that CEO is running this stuff by you. Part of the benefit is just them running it by you. And then also, you know, you re-articulating your advice is probably incredibly helpful to that person because they've been going back and forth in their brain probably a ton, you know, so just getting out of with no one they can talk to, right? You know, because they may not yeah. want to talk to their venture investor until it's fully baked. They may not want to talk to all of their management team because they're going to get distracted by the shiny new thing and drop the ball on the thing that they're actually running. So totally. Yeah. I love it. First of all, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy for you. And though we didn't get, I didn't get a chance to comment too much on it, but working without stress is a really amazing goal. And I'm glad you got there. And I, I have to say, I'm getting pretty close. Like I'm really enjoying it. So I marked that as a win in my column too. So I hope people who listen to this just kind of, I wouldn't have thought that was possible three years ago. Right. And so if you're listening 
this and you think it's not possible, then we can tell you it is. And uh, if you need a coach, Mark is the man. And uh, I'm really excited that your practice is going so well. Thank you so much. No, I, I love it. And, uh, you know, it's hugely rewarding. And again, I'll, I'll just go back to Buddhism for one second. You know, a premise of that is like the purpose of life is to be happy. You know, we are seeking happiness. And the way I think about that is all I have are my days. So is each day happy and rewarding or not? And the absence of stress is a huge contributor to each day being happy. So yeah, I'm loving it. Beautiful. All right. What URL or how do we get in touch with you if we want to work with you? Yeah. Uh, so I'm now in the world's least scalable business. It's just me. Uh, so it's very simple. Uh, markmcleod.me. McLeod is M-A-C-L-E-O-D. So markmcleod.me. Uh, I put some blog posts up there pretty regularly. I, I love to write. I, I learn and clarify my thinking through writing and uh, again, my job is not to prescribe, even though a lot of those blog posts are in the form of advice, but at least allows people to see how I think. And if they resonate with how I think, then we should have a chat. Love it. MarkMcLeod.me. Thank you, Mark. And looking forward to the next time we talk. Thank you so much, Scott. Really enjoyed being here. Keep well. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Scotty. Orr.